turn your Bibles this morning to James chapter number one. James chapter number one. We're going to look here beginning in verse number 22 and down through verse 25. Fairly familiar passage of scripture. <clears throat> James chapter number one and beginning in verse 22. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. I want to speak this morning on the thought walking in the liberty of faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for, Lord, the nation that you've given us. Lord, as we celebrate her birth, and we thank you for our independence. Lord, we pray that you would help us to not waste the freedoms that we have, but that we would rise to the responsibility that they bring to us. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to understand also that that's not only true uh, in our lives as Americans, but it's true in our, li in our lives as Christians as well. Thank you that you've set us free from the bondage and from the penalty of our sin. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be wise enough to not want to return to that bondage, but to live in the freedom that we have in Christ, realizing that that freedom brings with it a great responsibility. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be seeking out your truth and to be living in the fullness of your power and Lord, to bear uh, the responsibility that you've given us. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see some things this morning that would inspire us, encourage us to do just that. In Jesus' name, amen. When you look here and back up just a little bit here in, uh, in verse 17, he says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, and slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. And wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves." we look at this this morning, we consider the fact that Jesus has given us tremendous liberty and freedom. The freedom from the bondage of our sin, from the, from the power of our sin. And you look at what we celebrate this weekend as a country, just uh, as a nation, 246 years ago, uh, that th there was a great struggle to birth a nation. Uh, it's hard to imagine, it's hard for me to say 246 years ago, because I, re I remember uh, as a boy uh, taking coins up to the railroad, to the rail tracks, because there was a train in, 17, in 1976, there was a train that went all over the country that was just a patriotic train, it had the Liberty Bell from Philadelphia was in it, 
uh, and it would go from city to city and they would publish at the times that it would come through your area. And I remember riding my bicycle all the way down by, by the baseball fields in Joshua to the train tracks, knowing when it was going to come and laying coins on the track uh, and then stepping back and watching the train go by and then going to find my flattened out coins after it had passed. Uh, and the, the big deal that the bicentennial was, I mean, that was a major celebration. I, I, I doubt whenever uh, the way things are going when we celebrate 300 years, certainly I won't be here to experience that, uh, but, but whenever it happens, it's hard for me to fathom that it will be as grand of a celebration with as much meaning as it was at 200. Uh, unless revival comes, unless God changes, unless our, uh, our, our countrymen wake up, and I really think that it would take uh, something on the, on the scale of a World War II to make that even possible, absent a revival from the Lord. Uh, and so be mindful of how special it is to know. Uh, in just four years, we'll celebrate 250 years. I hope I'm here for that one. Uh, and so, but it'll be, uh, it'll be grand. Uh, but what we're celebrating is a struggle to birth a nation. It's a struggle to show, to uh, throw off tyranny and to set a, the foundation of uh, a, a nation whose people could be free. Common men became great men as they stood up and paid the price for liberty. And we look and you see as in, and go back through all of the major things throughout our history, the men that we look back at now and say they're the father of our country or they were great heroes of our country uh, before they were tested were just common men. And common men can only be proven in the test of battle. Whatever that battle looks like, that battle may not be on uh, uh, in a war on a battlefield, it may be on the streets, it may be uh, protecting others, it may be running into buildings and, uh, and helping those in need, it may be uh, being some, there and being a uh, father to someone that does not have one, it may manifest itself in many ways, but it's rising to the occasion to uh, lift oneself out of being common. Trials reveal who we really are. The struggle of life reveals whether we're strong or weak, whether we're honorable or dishonorable, but whether we're courageous or whether we're cowards, only in the fire can those things be revealed. And 2,000 years ago, a little over, Jesus came and the greatest struggle in history for liberty came. As Jesus came to fight the battle, uh, to offer himself a sacrifice, uh, when he came and Satan rose up and tried with all of his might to destroy him before he was resurrected from that grave, Jesus came and set us free from the bondage of sin. Sadly, today, many people refuse to live free from the bondage of their sin. Liberty means freedom from restraint. And a lot of times in, in the culture in which we live now, Liberty or freedom means do what you want without consequence. It means no one has the right to tell me what to do. It means that uh, there, no one can say this is right, this is wrong, this is moral, this is immoral. This is, uh, we, we, a lot of people today just reject that notion. Uh, but the truth is, is that what liberty brings is restraint or freedom from restraint. But it's not freedom from restraint to just do anything. <clears throat> It's freedom from restraint to do what's right. It's freedom from being hindered to do what's right. Jesus 
uh, in Luke 14 in chapter eight, in chapter four, 4 rather in verse 18 spoke uh, and quoting from Isaiah saying the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captive and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to take those that are oppressed and set them free. When Jesus came, he took and looked at a mankind at his creation that he, uh, that he made when all of his majesty that had fallen, that had rejected him and said, I want to come and I want to set it at liberty from the oppression and from the curse of this sin. My friends, this morning we all were born under the curse and the bondage of sin and Jesus has come to seek us out and set us free. Amen. And we can live in that liberty. The gospel is a law of liberty, Matthew Henry said, giving us deliverance from the Jewish law and from sin and guilt and wrath and death. We see in our text this morning in James chapter 1 and verse 25, he says, But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, uh, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If I want to live in God's blessing, I need to be a doer of the work. I understand this morning that God saved us by his grace and we, uh, we obtain that grace through exercising our faith in him. Uh, and so we are saved by grace through faith. Uh, but faith without works, James says, is dead. James is not an argument against uh, salvation by grace through faith. It is the revelation that genuine faith and the genuine reception of grace will produce in us a changed life. That a genuine believer will be seeking to do, not to just be a bystander, uh, to be following after him. Religion states that we are at liberty, therefore we can live as we please without consequence. Culture states takes it even farther than that, erroneously. But we are free from the bonds of ceremonial law, we are not free from the bonds of moral law. Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law. He did not eradicate or do away with the moral law. God is still holy. He is still righteous. Fornication is still sin. Adultery is still sin. Sodomy is still sin. Whatever it is that we that culturally want to look at and justify, the Bible has made it clear that God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what was sin then is still sin today. Amen. Doesn't mean that people are to be treated unkindly. They are to be loved and shown the gospel. But the reality is, is that if I do not wake up and understand God and his holiness and accept the responsibility that I have as a Christian, it won't be long before we won't have the liberty to practice our faith the way that we do today. We are free, yes, from the ceremony of the law, but we are bound by God's nature and the character of who he is. We are free from the bonds of sin. We're not under its control, at least we don't have to be. Sadly, many Christians choose to return. I can't imagine, uh, you know, being uh, in bondage and then being set free and given everything that I need to succeed and to abound and to thrive and then say, no, I don't want that. I would rather go back to my shackles. But as Christians, a lot of times that, that's what we do. 
We love our sin. We love the allure of the world. We love uh, what the, the things that we know are displeasing to God and we, uh, and we cling to them even though we know that when we cling to them it's going to bring back burden and bondage and control and the yoke of that sin upon our lives. We, we go back willingly. But Jesus set us free from it. We don't have to live that way. We're free from death. But we're not free from chastening. I don't have to worry about, as a child of God, ever standing in judgment and being cast into an eternal lake of fire. But I have to worry every day whenever I disobey him about his chastening hand. And not a chastening hand that's cruel and unfair, but a chastening hand that's, that's executing that chastening and that correction because he loves us. And because he wants what's best for us. A Christian at liberty will faithfully uh, will be faithfully executing the work of God. And if I understand liberty correctly in the biblical sense, I will faithfully execute the work of God. I will do it in the way of God. And I will do it according to the will of God. Not according to my way. Not according to my will. Not according to the devices of man. But the will and the way of God. And so we look this morning and see that a man who is walking in the liberty of faith is a man, first of all, who will be a student of the Word. I cannot truly be a person of faith if I'm not learning the Word. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, Romans tells us. If, if, I don't, if I'm not a diligent student of the Word of God, then I will not ever gain from God and from the Bible the strength and the nourishment that I need. And so I need to be a student of the word. Notice he says in verse number 25, but whoso looketh into the perfect law. Who's looking? When's the last time that we took a look at the book? When's the last time that we were looking into the word of God? No, pastor, I know the word of God. I know that verse. I know that passage. I know this. And I'm not talking about a casual reading. I'm talking about a look. I'm not talking about a glance. I'm talking about studying the Word of God. You know, there is the casual look that you give the passerby, and then there is the deep look of love that you would give your child or your grandchild or your spouse. A gaze that's not passing, a gaze that is locked and fixed and focused on uh, their attention. Uh, and it is, uh, it is an expression of interest and love and, uh, and, and the life that you would share together. Be a student of the word. And that starts with learning the basics. I, I, I am never cease to be amazed. And sometimes shocked and appalled at the failure as pastors and churches that we've had upon people over the decades. To not impart the word of God in such a way that it's known and retained. Now I understand that we as individuals have to do our part as well. We need to be hungry for the word of God. Somebody has to want to hear what's given before any of it is received. Just because you're sitting in the auditorium this morning doesn't mean, and listening to the words that are spoken doesn't mean that you're really hearing the message that's being preached or the, the, the principles of the scripture that's being, uh, that's being proclaimed. A student of the word of God uh, must look unto the word of God. Deeply, impactfully. And that starts with learning the basics. And our church here, we put a, a high 
value on discipleship, on, uh, on learning the basic principles of the faith. When someone new comes, especially if they're recently saved or they're relatively new Christians, when they come, we do our best to pair them up with someone that can sit down and take them through a curriculum that will teach them the basic principles of Christianity and teach what the Bible says so that we have a ground, we're grounded and we have a good understanding of that biblical truth. In 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse number in verse number two, he says, "As newborn babes desire the sincere milk milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby." You know, it's an amazing thing that nobody has to teach a brand new baby what it, what it means to be hungry. They may not understand the sensation that makes them cry out and search for food, but they're not going to be settled or satisfied until they obtain it. They don't, uh, we don't say in this morning, we don't necessarily have to come at the Bible with a mindset that the first time that I pick it up, the first time that I read a passage, that I'm going to understand all there is to know about it. But I know this, that I'm hungry and as I feed on it, it satisfies the soul. You don't have to teach that to a newborn child and you really don't have to teach that to a newborn Christian, but we do such a poor job as churches and as Christians in general that are older and should be more settled and committed and, and loving the Lord that we don't properly teach when they are hungry and consequently they feed on something else and learn to grow satisfied with something else. And the things of this world and we turn against God. But newborn babes will desire the sincere milk of the word. Why? Because they want to grow. Desire the sincere milk of the word that we may grow thereby. Learn the basics. If you're a Christian, no matter how long you've been saved and you don't know the basics, commit yourself today to learn the basics. If you're here and you've been saved and been in church for decades, but you don't know the basic tenets of the faith and you don't understand the importance of the virgin birth and you don't understand the importance of the scripture and its purity and, and the sacredness of the word of God and you don't understand how to properly pray and communicate with God and fellowship with him, learn. Don't just be satisfied with where you are. And don't be uh, bitter against what you've not been taught. But rise to the occasion and pick up the word of God and go to the Holy Spirit and let him teach you. And reach out to older, more settled, more seasoned brothers and sisters in Christ and say, Hey, would you help me? Would you teach me? Would you instruct me in righteousness? I want to know more about God and his word and my faith. Learn the basics. If I would be a man who walks truly and understands the liberty of the faith that Jesus has provided for me, I must learn what he's provided. I must learn what he's taught me. Learn the basics. I would say secondly as a warning, learn the enemy. Learn the enemy in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. And you know the verse, be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Satan wants to destroy you. He is the God of this world. He is an authority over the systems of this world. And don't think for a moment that he won't use everything at his disposal to win the battle. He will. I need to learn the enemy. I was, I was amazed when I went into the military at how much of our training time was dedicated to learning the tactics and the weapons of the enemy. 
I expected to learn ours. I, I expected to learn the systems that we, I would potentially have to use uh, and uh, learn basic things about uh, how to maintain a weapon and how to clean the weapon and how to use the weapon and how to sight the weapon and how to, uh, how to you know, stand post and how to be out on the line and uh, how to dig a fighting hole and how to uh, do all of those things. I expected that. I didn't expect to have to spend so much time learning about the tactics and the weapon systems of the enemy. But as I learned it, I understood the value of it. I understood the value of, 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 of knowing how to even begin to set up my position of defense based upon uh, what the enemy had proven was going to be his method of attack or his most likely way of attack. Listen, we know what the devil, how he's going to attack. The Bible tells us how he's attacked. We have uh, 6,000 years of history recorded for us in the pages of scripture that demonstrate to us the ways in which Satan has attacked God and his people throughout human history. It would do us well to learn his tactics. It's bad enough to be defeated. It's even worse to be blindsided and not even see the attack coming. We don't have to go through life getting bushwhacked by the enemy because we didn't see him coming. Whenever all we need is to walk with God because he'll reveal to us the tactics of the enemy. Know your enemy. Know that he's cruel and that he's vicious. Know that he's merciless and unrelenting. Know that until he's cast for eternity into the lake of fire, he'll never ever give up. Even though he knows he's lost. I don't know, I look back through history and I love history. I love especially uh, mid-1900s history uh, and World War II in particular. And I, I look at the contrast between, uh, I'm not saying that the Germans weren't cruel. They, clearly they were very cruel uh, and especially what they did in the Holocaust. And, uh, but whenever it came time to understand that Hitler was dead and they were defeated, they surrendered by the hundreds of thousands at a time. Not the Japanese. You go back and you look at the major battles in the Pacific campaign and what you'll find uh, is of the 20,000 or the 30,000 or the 15,000 or the 45,000 troops that the Japanese had on any given particular island that when the battle was done, whether it lasted for six weeks or six months, generally fewer than 500 Japanese survived the battle. And it wasn't because we were so cruel that we wouldn't take a prisoner. It's because they were going to fight to the death no matter what. They were not going to give up. And neither is Satan. He'll never surrender. And I need to realize that as a Christian. I need to realize that, that he's cruel. I need to realize that he hates me. And I need to realize that he is a deceiver and a liar and an accuser of the brethren. And he'll plant the thoughts in my head about you and in your mind about me and uh, about, uh, you know, this brother against that brother but because he wants to churn up and cause division within the, the, the family of God. That, that's, his ta that's one of his tactics. I need to learn that. I need to know that. I need to know that he can appear as an angel of light and that he's perfectly willing to say all kinds of, uh, of smooth and sweet words to me and emulate the things of God for a time to deceive me and to lead me away. I need to understand the, the, the value of knowing the word of God and knowing God so that when the enemy rises up, I can recognize the power, the strength, and the deceptiveness of the enemy so that I can fight back against what he's trying to undo in my life. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. 
And I need to be not only learning the basics and learning my enemy, but refining my skills. God gave you skills. God gave you talents. God gave you abilities. God has given us methods of training and, uh, and learning and being developed. And they're not to just be learned and forgotten, but to be practiced and to be, tra- to be maintained and to be perfected. To become skilled at, uh, at what we do and, uh, and how we represent him. In Philippians chapter 2 and uh, verse number 2, uh, the Bible tells us that we are to... Uh, that we are to come to him worthily. Fulfill ye my joy, uh, ye that be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord uh, and of one mind. And we, as we come together, one accord and one mind with one heart, serving God together, realizing in verse number 12, that wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Paul writes, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation. What does that mean, Pastor? That means be working at the things that God teaches you. That means working toward a mature Christian life, working to a mature understanding, a deeper understanding of the Word of God, working at accomplishing what God has given me uh, to accomplish and what God's given me to do. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Stand fast, work out your salvation, be a doer of the word. Listen, I can't do the word if I don't know the word. I have to know it. A man who's walking in liberty must be a student of the word, but whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty. Secondly, that servant of God, that man and woman who is working and uh, walking in the liberty of faith must be a student of the work. I not only need to be a student of the word, but I need to be a student of the work. What are you talking about, Pastor? I'm talking about the finished work of Christ. What did he come to do? What was his work? What was his finished work? He came to heal. He came to love. He came to forgive. He came to strengthen. He came to protect. He came to make atonement. He came uh, to defeat the enemy. He came to rise from a grave and uh, offer us salvation. I need to be a servant of the work. A student of the word. A servant of the work. The finished work of Christ. Listen, he did not leave us here to just do what we want to do when we want to do it. He left us here to serve the work that he set in place. We're here to serve. Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve. Now there'll be a time when we honor him for all of eternity, but when he came to earth, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came and made himself of no reputation and he humbled himself in the form of a servant. He came to serve. And we as God's people should not be expecting the world to bow down to us. And as Sunday school teachers, deacons, pastors, expecting congregations to bow down to us, we're here to serve. I'm not saying that it's not right and honorable to give honor to whom honors do. There's a biblical principle. I'm saying that the, the reason that we do what we do is not to obtain honor, but to serve the work and the will of God. Be a servant of the work. A doer of God's will. Again, in verse 25, be a doer of the work 
And if we're doers of the work, then we can be blessed in our deed. Where does that begin? Well, it begins with me understanding the work that God wants done. His will. Do God's will. There are some things that we could spend weeks on uh, lists of things that are clearly the will of God. I mean, I could this morning, is it the will of God for me to uh, read and study his word? Clearly. Is it the will of God for me to pray? Absolutely. Is it the will of God for me to be kind? Yes. And we could go down all kinds of things that are general and applicable to every person that's in the room. But beyond that, God has a will for you. God didn't create you to be me or me to be you. He created you to be exactly who he needs you to be. For your family, for your children, for your grandchildren. He created you who you need to be for the people that you work with. And, uh, and you are potentially everything necessary for the lost people that come within your sphere of influence to trust Christ as their Savior because that's what Jesus Christ made you to be and it's his will for you to be a light in that darkness. Will I be a doer of the will of God? Consider not only do I need to be a doer of God's will, but I need to be an example of God's grace. If I would do his will, I must do it in his grace. I could look and I could say, I know it's God's will for me to do this. I know it's God's will for me to preach this message. I know it's God's will for me to confront this issue. And I can do it without grace and totally wreck the message so that it's not received. It's amazing that God, even accounting for that, said, let your speech be always grace seasoned with salt. Too many Christians are salt, maybe seasoned with a little grace. We need to be grace seasoned with salt. Doesn't mean we don't speak the truth, but it doesn't mean, it does mean that we shouldn't speak it hatefully. That we shouldn't be degrading. We need to speak that truth. Be an example of God's grace in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter number 8. 1 Corinthians chapter number 8 uh, and verse number 9 he said, But take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them who are weak. You know, I could look at a lot of things in my life and say, uh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. But I need to be cognizant of the fact that it could be a stumbling block to someone else. We have a responsibility to one another this morning. You know, there are some things uh, that I don't do, not because I look at them and say that I think that that's sinful. But I think that if I were to do that as a pastor of the church, it would be a stumbling block to some people in the church. So I just choose not to do it. Now, there are a lot of things that are very clear and dry, right, wrong. But there are a lot of things where God's given us liberty and uh, there are things that may hinder me and my walk, but they, they wouldn't bother you at all. Maybe it's a, something that would open the door of temptation for me, but it's not something that would tempt you at all uh, and vice versa. But I don't want to indulge in things that I may be comfortable and at liberty with in my heart if it's going to be a hindrance to someone else's faith in their growth. That's not me going without. That's just honoring my responsibility as God's child to my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I need to be mindful of the fact that I need to be an example of God's grace. God extended tremendous grace to me. I need to be an extender of grace to others. Uh, in Galatians chapter 5 and 13, he says, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. 
There's so many places that you look around and they have church on the sign, but all they really are is entertainment centers that are waiting uh, and drawing people in so that they can just uh, appease their need to feel like they've served God. Uh, and they use liberty as the excuse to just do whatever, whenever, however. That's not what biblical liberty is. Amen. Biblical liberty is being freed from my sin and honoring and accepting the responsibility that I have to my brothers and sisters in Christ and to the lost world around me that I should be an example of the grace of God. Not only should I be a doer of his will, an example of his grace, but I need to be a beacon of God's hope. We are to be a light in the darkness. We are uh, to be those that, that stand out and that draw attention not to ourselves but to our Savior. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17 says, Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. It's amazing how when the grace of God is made manifest through the life of a Christian, that it lifts the bondage and the blindness of, of sin from the eyes of someone who's seeking truth so that they can accept the liberty that God is providing to them. A beacon of God's hope. Let your light shine. Let God shine through you. Not only if I would be a man who walks in the liberty of faith, should I, must I be a student of the word and a servant of the work. But I also this morning must be a seeker of the worth. If I don't believe it's valuable, I'll never invest any time in it. If I don't believe it's worth the effort, I won't study it. If I don't believe that it's worth what God intends for me in my life, then I'm not going to invest much time in it. Well, pastor, I know I've done this long enough that if I, you know, I can give this person this many hours, but I can already tell by the way that they live and the way they act and their relationship and their interest level that they're never gonna, they're never gonna buy into this, so I'm just not gonna waste my time. Better make sure God's done before you're done. You might be right. And in all honesty, the experience would teach us, especially if you've been uh, trying to help people for decades, that the vast majority of the time you are right. The problem is you don't know who's that one or that two that's really hungry that's going to rise up and be the one that God specially uses. An old Sunday school teacher didn't know who D.L. Moody would become whenever he stopped by the shoe store that he was working in and gave him the gospel. It'd be wonderful if we could just look and say, yeah, that person's going to become the, the, next, uh, the next great missionary or the next uh, pastor that reaches millions or the next, uh, the next person that has this impact on culture and society. Uh, it'd be wonderful if we knew that so that we could uh, just really get, find that person and, and, and develop our life into them. But that's not God's plan. We don't know. Everyone is afforded an opportunity to trust or reject Christ, to choose to live for him or not, be a seeker of the worth. Listen, this is a simple point is this, is that if I don't value my Christian liberty, if I don't value my Christian heritage, if I don't value my nation and the freedoms that afford me, I will never appreciate it or love it like I should. The problem with America today is that too many people uh, that are out gaining all the media attention have never paid a price for what they have. And they don't value it. It has no worth to them. Value what was given to us. Value what God's given and done for us. 
It's amazing that in this last week, an Ivy League school took down the Gettysburg Address because it was too offensive. There's no value. Listen, I don't want to be guilty of not giving value to what God has given me in his word. I don't want to be guilty of not giving value to what God has given me in his church. I don't want to be guilty of, giving, uh, of, of, of not giving value to the will of God for my life and what he's, my, the responsibilities that, that I have and that you have uh, to one another and to the world around us. Do we find it worthwhile? Do we see this morning the worth of a holy life? Notice what he says in verse 25 again. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Do I want his blessing? Do I want to lean on him? First Peter chapter uh, chapter 1 and verses 15 and 16, uh, he tells us here, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, that's lifestyle, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Do I think it's worthwhile? Is there value in holy living? If the answer is no, you'll never live a holy life. Listen, I understand this morning all of us uh, could look at our lives with, uh, with, with a critical eye and say, man, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not very holy here. I'm not as holy as I should be there. And I'm not. But what's the goal? Do I reject? I'm just telling you today that, that many people, many Christian people reject the notion that they have any responsibility whatsoever to live a holy life in any form. What does a holy life look like, Pastor? may not look exactly the same for every person on some levels, but it's going to be really similar in a lot of major things. But it's more. It's more than just having a good attitude. It's more than just having a kind spirit. A seeker of the worth. Do I value it? If I don't value it, I will walk away from it. Consider, do I find value or worth in a walk with God? Right, most Christians don't walk with God day to day, week to week. They just get through from Sunday to Sunday, but really give God no time between Sundays. They don't see any value in it. They don't see any worth in it. Not enough to command their time, not enough to draw their attention. But Colossians chapter two uh, and verse number six, uh, he tells us here uh, that as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus, uh, Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Walk in Christ. He continues rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as ye have been taught abounding therein with thanksgiving. I should be rooted and abounding in my walk with Christ. Do I find it worth the effort? Do I find it worth the effort and the time to witness to others, to share my faith? Again, in Ephesians chapter number four and uh, verse number one. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 1, the Bible tells us this, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. I am to walk 
worthy of what God has given me to do. In Colossians chapter number 1 and verse number 10, uh, he says that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What is he saying? But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein. It's one thing to learn. It's another thing to continue. It's another thing to develop and to serve. It's another thing to serve God because it's right to do, not because it's what I'm deriving my income from. Listen, if a person uh, that aspires to ministry uh, would not serve in ministry, whether, whether or not they're being paid for it, they're not worthy of being hired. Serve God because you love God. Serve God because he called. Serve God because we have a responsibility. If I want to walk in the liberty of the faith, I have to understand that that liberty bears responsibility. That liberty doesn't mean I can just come and go as I please, but I have a responsibility to be a student of the word. That I have a responsibility to be a servant of the work. And I have a responsibility to be a seeker of the worth of God's impact in my life and the service that I offer him at his command. Liberty this morning is not a license to sin. It is freedom from the control of sin that allows us to effectively live the Christian life. Peter Marshall, and if you look him up, you're going to get, if, if you don't know who you're looking for, you're just going to get some American celebrity game shows, movie star, whatever. There was a man named Peter Marshall that lived in the early 1900s. He died early. He was only 46 when he died in 1949. He was a pastor. He just preached truth. And God blessed his ministries. And in 1947, as he was pastoring a church in Washington, D.C., he was, and well, in 1946, actually, he was appointed to be the chaplain of the Senate. In January of 1947, he assumed his position as the chaplain of the Senate. That really doesn't mean a whole lot today, but in 1947, that meant a lot. And he served in that capacity until he died suddenly of a heart attack in 1949. And as he was talking to and counseling senators, addressing them and opening sessions in prayer and things of that nature, he said this. May we think of freedom not as the right to do as we please, but as the opportunity to do what is right. And as Christians, may we understand that Jesus Christ has given us tremendous liberty in the New Testament age. Not to do as we please, but as an opportunity to do what is right. Would I do what's right today? I'm going to tell you, as we celebrate the 4th of July, that the only hope of our nation is God's people doing what's right. Because when God's people do what's right, God gets involved. And God could bring revival. And God could stir souls. If we would be a doer of the work. And not a hearer only. Be a doer. And be blessed in your deed.